1: Hello, you are very welcome to the Tonight Show. Guardi are investigating yet another suspected arson attack at a property rumoured to be considered for asylum seekers, the 18th such attack in just a year. We discuss plans to increase the cap on passenger numbers at Dublin Airport and weigh up criticism of the recent public sector pay deal with Minister of Public Expenditure Pascal Donoghue and a panel of guests. And we'll bring you the very latest on the Middle East after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejects any ceasefire deal with Hamas, calling instead for a decisive victory. But first, some breaking news. The HSE has confirmed that an adult who contracted measles has died. It's the first such measles case notified in Ireland this year. Well, for more on this, let's go to Virgin Media news correspondent Zara King, who is at the Department of Health. Zara, this literally has broken in the last hour. What more can you tell us at this stage?
2: Yes, good evening, Kira. So there's very little uh, detail on the specifics of this case uh, in that announcement from the HSE tonight, but to reiterate that they are saying that uh, this is an adult uh, who has died. Uh, This is the first confirmed case of measles in Ireland this year. Um, I suppose, look, it's important to note as well that uh, this person has died being a confirmed case of measles, but the exact cause of death uh, does remain under investigation. This comes a day after the Health Minister, Stephen Donnelly, uh, told his Cabinet colleagues that there was a high probability of a measles outbreak in Ireland. Of course, of they monitoring the situation across the UK uh, and uh, Europe over the last couple of weeks, particularly if we look at England. Uh, we know that there were 170 measles cases in the West, West Midlands uh, region of England, and that was from December to mid-January, those figures, Kira. So uh, this is something that has been looked at very, very closely. Um, Stephen Donnelly uh, pointing to the fact that it's really important that people make sure that they are vaccinated. Uh, we know that the World Health Organization's uh, standard for vaccines has dipped slightly lower here in Ireland. They say it should be at 95%. In order to obtain what we call herd immunity, they're saying that that number has dropped below 90% in Ireland in recent years. Uh, also, Kira, you know, looking back on previous measles outbreaks, we spoke yesterday to one consultant paediatrician, Dr. Neve Lynch. She'd worked in Temple Street uh, back in the early 2000s when there was a measles outbreak in North Dublin. And she said at that time uh, there were uh, hundreds of children who were hospitalised and it was a very serious situation. Uh, the reality now, Kira, is that the HSE is trying to encourage people to catch up on their measles vaccine. So, uh, The dose for the measles vaccine is given first at 12 months and the second one is is given in junior infants. But, of course, uh, while the schools were closed during the COVID-19 pandemic, it's possible that some of those children uh, may have missed out on their second vaccine. So the message from the Department of Health is very clear. Make sure that you are vaccinated and that you've gotten your two doses.
1: Okay, Sarah King, thank you for bringing us uh, that update. Well, Guardi are investigating a suspected arson attack at a property in Kildare that was rumoured to be earmarked to house asylum seekers. Emergency services were called to the vacant house in Leakslip in the early hours of the morning. The house was substantially damaged by a fire. Guardi say there was a significant volume of misinformation online about its proposed use. It's the 18th suspected arson attack linked to the accommodation of asylum seekers in just one year. Well, I'm joined in studio by the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, Finnegan TD for Dublin Central. Pascal Donahue. you're very welcome Thank to you, the programme minister. Um, just to refer briefly to um, what Zara King was just telling us there, the exact cause of death of this individual is unknown, but we know they had a confirmed case of measles. Um, it comes at a time, I suppose, when Stephen Donnelly has been speaking about the alarming rate of measles that we're seeing on the continent, and indeed the drop in the number of people in this country who are now vaccinated. It certainly brings a new impetus to the department and to yourselves to get that message out there, to get vaccinated. Uh,
3: Absolutely. Uh, Above all, my thoughts and condolences go out to uh, grieving family, friends and loved ones tonight who've lost uh, somebody I'm sure they cared for deeply. Uh, The general point that I would make is the great lesson we've learned from health policy in recent years is that vaccines work. They save save lives. They can contain diseases that can cause such harm. Uh, And uh, for those children who are not yet, have not yet completed the vaccine program, it's just so important that that does happen. Uh, And there's also, as you know, a catch up vaccine available for children under the age of 10 for those children who may have missed a vaccine opportunity because of the disruption caused by COVID. Of course, the last terrible disease that we saw the value of vaccines with.
1: All right, let's just move on um, to the story that's been dominating a lot of the bulletins today. This is this arson attack in Leakslip on a house that was wrongly linked, we've heard now, from the Department of Integration to housing uh, international protection applicants. We have the Tanisha, Michael Martin, in Washington today saying this is now an organised campaign of arson and criminality. It is the 18th such attack in a year. How would you define it?
3: Uh, I fear that it's very, very likely and I fear the Tanisha is correct. And what is simply appalling is those who are inflicting such harm and risking the lives of others uh, frequently do so uh, on the basis that there's not enough homes available, uh, that migration is causing challenges to the availability of accommodation. And the best they can offer is to burn accommodation down, to remove properties that were not intended for use in this case, uh, for uh, support for refugees. Uh, The risk to property is already so great, but the risk to life is also so significant. Uh, uh, And uh, those who are involved in such action are committing criminal acts. And it's so important that we support the Guardian in their efforts to bring them to justice.
1: I mean, some people have been describing this as a type of domestic terrorism.
3: So I think when you talk about terrorism, it is uh, uh, also offences that are taking place against the state. Uh, And at the very least, what we are seeing here is a form of organised crime that is now happening on a systemic basis. And regardless of whether you class it either as crime or terrorism, um, it's not happening in the name of the overwhelming majority of people within our country, the vast, vast majority of people within our country. uh, Those who are coming to our country seeking refuge are frequently doing so fleeing circumstances that are just appalling.
1: But given the frequency of these attacks, would you accept at this point in time the government doesn't have a handle on this?
3: Um, I'd respectfully make a different case. Uh, Of course, we never hear about the incidents and the crimes the Gardaí prevent. And around 50 individuals last year were arrested, individuals who were involved in activity that could have been threatening to migrants or could have caused harm to property that was associated with them. So the Gardaí, I genuinely believe, are doing all they can. Uh, But as the Gardaí do their work, it's also incumbent on politicians like myself to make two points. Uh, Firstly, that migration, that support for refugees, is something that we, I believe, can do and have a duty to do and in parallel to doing that, uh, those who come to our country in any way breaking the law, those who come to our country seeking refuge if they shouldn't be, we deal with those in a fair and rules-based way, and that is also happening.
1: OK, but in relation to these uh, arson attacks, Michael Martin today used the language crackdown. That's what he said. So what do you think is required to stop these attacks taking place? Uh,
3: I think two things will need to happen, and the government are committed to doing that. Uh, firstly, continue to support the Guardi and the Garda Síochána. Tougher wa- sanctions? Uh, well, I think the law actually uh, already has very strong sanctions in place with regard to threat to personal life, and also with regard to uh, threats to property. Those sanctions are already in place. And what the government is looking to do, through, for example, recruiting more Gardaí through Templemore, which we are doing at the moment, is to support the Gardaí in their efforts to bring those who are committing crime to justice. Because that's what they're doing. This is criminal activity. But secondly, there's a broader duty on all of us. To anybody who might have evidence or any concerns or any information about those who are involved in this activity to share that with the guardian and also then to deal with the misinformation that is challenging us as a society regarding migration regarding international protection and what the state is looking to do and that's a broader difficulty that the state has a leading role to play in but we can all play our part
1: too. Speaking of that uh, misinformation that you talk about, you only have to look at any social media platform. And there are posts about this particular building that were targeted, but there's been loads of other calls on social media to target other buildings um, that were earmarked to house international protection applicants. And we've seen 18 of those buildings targeted. You say there have been arrests. I think a lot of those in relation to the Dublin riots. There has not been a single individual charged with arson um, in relation to any of these properties. Is... Does that embolden, do you think, those who are clearly discussing this quite brazenly online? I suppose that
3: risk is there. Uh, the risk is there that a small number of people have become radicalised, radicalized, are willing to contemplate acts of, of a criminal nature that can pose a threat to life, can pose a threat to uh, property. Uh, but as a really small minority of people are involved in this, um, it is also the case But the overwhelming majority within our country takes a different view in relation to activity and to such criminal activity. And it's why how we support the guards and how we deal with the availability of threatening information via social media platforms continues to be so important. Well, how are you going to deal with that? Well, I'll give an example of what happened there at the end of uh, November uh, when uh, those appalling events did take place um, in Dublin, in my own constituency, events that still shock me. Um, As information did begin to spread in social media in relation uh, to events that were going to take place that night, our social media regulator did trigger a protocol with social media platforms to look to curtail and contain the spread of information. That did happen. Um, And what the Gardaí, of course, can do and do do is monitor social media outlets and channels to get the information that they need to either deter criminal activity happening or catch those that are involved in it. And I know from my own personal experience, the commitment the Guards have to doing this.
1: All right. Let's move on to uh, Dublin Airport, because we know there has been a planning application uh, submitted by Dublin Airport Authority and supported by all major airlines to lift the cap on passenger numbers at Dublin Airport from 32 million up to 40 million. It seems to have support from the Taoiseach. It seems to have support from Michael McGrath. Do you support it?
3: I do. I, I support it because aviation can be a source of economic growth. Lots of different things that governments can be involved in are about how you can allocate uh, different parts of the economic pie, so to speak. Uh, But what aviation can do by bringing more people in and out of our country is actually grow our national income and grow our economy in a very, very clear way. So I do support it, but I'd make two accompanying points. Uh, Firstly, uh, this is now part of a planning process. It's something that I think all have to consider. And secondly, what is absolutely clearly vital is as we find ways and look at ways in which aviation can grow, it does need to grow in a more sustainable and cleaner way than it has in the past. And that and is a criticism uh, and the, here, isn't it? Yes, yeah, and, and that is a criticism that has to be publicly acknowledged. Uh, I want to see that growth, uh, but I want to see that growth happening in a more sustainable way, more conscious of the environmental concerns that we now know so well. And making progress on that is deeply important to the future of aviation. Mm. And I think it's also an important consideration regarding how the aviation sector grows here in Ireland, a sector which has made a huge contribution to employment and income growth within Ireland.
1: But you will accept that there is a, a clear contradiction. I mean, you said, I think it was in a budget speech two years ago, the science is unambiguous, the world is burning, and yet we are talking about increasing passenger numbers by 25% at Dublin airports. There is a contradiction there.
3: Um, Which is why I brought in the environmental concern. And it's why I said that growth that happens has to happen in a greener and cleaner way that has happened in the past. But I suppose,
1: sorry to cut across you, I'm just conscious, um, Hannah Daly, you know Professor Hannah Daly, Professor of Sustainability, said the new solutions that might be out there to decarbonise aviation, to make it more sustainable, to make it greener, they're not close to being available. Yet, and they have no chance of offsetting the increased emissions that we will get from increasing travel. That's the reality uh, right now.
3: uh, uh, And and I accept, of course, there are trade-offs. And that is one of the reasons why I've made the case now for many years for carbon taxes going up, to generate the resources that we need to decarbonise our economy, to give us the ability to make our country greener.
1: Should there be a specific aviation tax here if they are going to get this 25% increase? In I levels? don't
3: believe that is something that we should do unilaterally on an island basis only. For something like that to happen, it should happen EU-wide and it should also happen in a way that doesn't, wouldn't significantly disadvantage travel from outside the European Union or into the European Union. This is, of course, something that the Commission at the moment are considering. Of course, I take the point that there is a tension that we have to consider more and more between economic growth and the ecological considerations of that and what it can do to our economy, what can do what it can do to our environment, I should have said, which is why I said that future aviation growth needs to happen in a far greener way than it has happened in the
1: past. You'll understand, I would imagine, comments from one of the farming lobby groups, uh, the ICAMSa, who said there is shameless double standards happening here, that on one side you have state policy that's trying to drive down butter production and powder and cheese exports from places like Tipperary and Cork. And then on the other side, you have a government that is actually encouraging, by increasing the cap, something like hens and stags leaving Dublin Airport.
3: Uh, Which is why when I was making my opening point to you, I recognised the environmental concerns... They do have to be considered and addressed in a different way.
1: But the double standards, farmers feel they're being targeted, they're being told to reduce, reduce, reduce the emissions while you're saying to the aviation sector, for the economy, it's OK for you to increase yours. But we're also
3: encouraging an increase in food production. So we're, in, we're encouraging an increase in food production. So I don't accept the consistency of the point. We are looking for an increase in food production overall because Ireland, as a food exporter, can play a role in mm. feeding a world that's increasingly hungry. But as we are asking and working with our farmers to do so in a greener way, the rest of our economy, including aviation, needs to do the same.
1: OK, I just want to move on briefly to um, RTE because it's something that has sure. dominated a lot of conversation in the studio and indeed in other uh, networks. And to a piece written by Fintan O'Toole yesterday, I don't know if you saw it in the Irish Times. He was speaking about um, the former chief executive, D. Forbes, who has been unable to participate in many of the reports and indeed unable to participate in many of the committees because of uh, medical reasons. And he said that the, the silence at this point is undermining... Accountability. Do you agree with that?
3: Um, what if it's what? So I'm I'm always very very reluctant to comment on the health of any individual, uh, because uh, uh, while I'll go on to talk about what we need to do from an accountability perspective and all that has happened, I think you'd struggle to make the case that in the investigation into what has happened in RTE in recent weeks and months, it's lacked transparency and it's lacked mm. accountability. A huge amount of investigative effort has gone into what happened. Somebody could well be sick. Somebody could well be struggling with health concerns. That has not stopped any of the investigations that has happened by either the Oireachtas or by the uh, consultants that have been commissioned by either the government or the RTA. I think many of them would
1: suggest that there were questions that remain unanswered because they weren't able to speak to somebody who was at the centre of these investigations. Fintan O'Toole, I I, I, just just wanted to bring people, I suppose, what he said. He said, if basic systems of accountability are not to be flouted, we have to ask what the nature of that illness might be and how it could be so severe that she can neither speak nor write. He's saying it's time now to try and compel um, some of those who haven't participated to come in front of the Public Accounts Committee and if you refuse to do so, to actually produce a medical certificate?
3: Uh, well, the Public Accounts Com- Committee in particular has the power of compatibility if they choose to use that power. Uh, do you
1: think they should? Because his oh, concern I, I, I... is that a, a wider precedent he's in could be set here if that could be open to abuse in the future if you don't push somebody to
4: explain so, why they can't so be there.
3: I think we should just take a step back uh, as opposed to focusing on the health of a particular individual and what has happened. Uh, Because I'm not qualified to comment on the health of one individual any more so than I think anybody else should be. Uh, All I will say is there has been vast efforts, investigations by the government, investigations by RTE, investigations by the Oireachtas that have gone on for many months into what happened in RTE, with important reports still coming out and due to come out. Um, It's not clear to me. Um, What further questions remain to be answered that won't be answered by the reports that are still to come out. And what is clear to me is the agenda of change that the Director General of RTE has committed himself to, I believe is a response back and a decent response back to the governance difficulties that were unacceptable in RTE and should not have happened. I'm reluctant to begin to comment on the health of otherwise of individuals. Uh, uh, because of the scale of investigation that has now taken place into what happened in RTE, the vast majority of which sadly let us all down.
1: OK, let me move on to the uh, public service wage agreement that was agreed at the end of last month. 385,000 workers to get somewhere in the region of 10, I think point two five percent am I right, over two and a half right. years. Um, I just want to look at... The comments from David McWilliams, I don't know if you saw his article in the Irish Times, I which sure I'm did. quoting again. It was a big sure opinion Lots piece. Lots of quotes won't... from the Irish Times yes. here this evening, Kira. <laughs> They'll be very happy long. they will. You'll um, we'll have to mention other
3: papers later on. Uh,
1: he did, and we will. Uh, <laughs> but he did write a significant piece, I think it was last Saturday week. Um, and he, what he was saying, I suppose, was that the public service wage bill, he said, has increased by almost 75% over eight years, while in cumulative inflation has risen by almost 21%. And his big question is, what are we getting in return for that significant increase?
3: I thought, uh, I really enjoyed reading David McWilliams' articles. I I'm sure he'd be glad to hear that. He's an communicator and writer, and I believe he got this one completely wrong. Because what he didn't acknowledge in his article is the number of people who are working in the public sector has increased so much as well. So what have we got more people working in our public sector? At some point this year, there'll be over 400,000 people working within our public sector. What does that mean? has to be seen in the context of our population mm-hmm. getting bigger and bigger. It means we have more guards. It means we have more nurses. It means we have more teachers. David's article didn't take into account that we actually have more people working in the public sector. Okay. That's what and, we get for us.
1: Okay, and, and I accept that. So I looked well, at those I'm, figures, I'm, actually, uh, Minister. So between 2016 and 2024, that eight-year period where he says yes. there's been a nearly 75% increase in your wage bill, numbers have gone up by about 30%. Sure. And yet a 70-odd percent increase in the wage bill. But
3: but of course, at the very beginning of that period, we were also dealing with the impact of the FEMPE legislation. So we had a period of time in which people's wages were at a low level for those who worked in the public sector, or indeed, should I say, at a lower level than they otherwise would have been, because they were still seeing their wages being impacted by the legislation that was in place uh, uh, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. And honestly, what David's article was missing entirely was two points. Number one, we've more people working in our public sector, which you've just acknowledged there. Um, And uh, uh, number two, the fact that most of the period uh, that he uh, was looking at was a period of low inflation, not a period of high inflation. We know what caused high inflation is what happened with the cost of energy, It's what happened with raw materials and the pandemic ruining supply chains. It okay. really wasn't more people working in the public sector. But I suppose when our, our the country, country is getting bigger, uh,
1: which also been, has been asked by Ismi is what has been got in return here? You have said this is the pay increase that we sure. agree to, and normally there's a bit of give and take. There's extra productivity, perhaps, or yeah. there are other um, demands that you would make as minister for such a significant increase. Were there any conditions to this? Of
3: course, there were, and with three in particular that I point to in the agreement. Uh, Number one, a recognition of the role uh, that internships can play and more interns can play within our public service. Number two, a recognition of the fact that digital technology can play a bigger role in the delivery of public services. What does
1: does recognition mean?
3: Of digital technology?
1: Just In terms of, you know, this is what the unions supposed have agreed to in return, that they will recognise the role of perhaps AI. I mean, how how would that actually play out? Oh, I'll give
3: an example of how it could play out. It could play out, for example... In, uh, in how we have used um, uh, technology, for example, uh, during the pandemic to organise vaccines. That's a great example of how it could play out. Why shouldn't we and why wouldn't we be able to do that on a recurring basis? Uh, what the agreement also pointed to is we want to find uh, continued ways in which we can look at greater flexibility in the delivery of public services and their accessibility. That is laid out in the agreement. But I'd make the final point, if I may, to you very, very quickly that we also have to deal with the attractiveness of the public service as an employer in the context of an economy that's really at full employment. If we weren't playing our planners, our engineers, our nurses, our teachers, a wage that is competitive, they could either leave what they do or they could go and do the same job in bigger numbers in other parts of the world. And that issue has to be recognised as well.
1: All right. Uh, Minister Pascal Dunhu, thank you very much for coming to us. Thank you very much, Thank you. We're going to leave it there for now. My thanks to Pascal Donahue. But up next, more on what's being called this organised campaign of arson and violence. Do stay with us. Well, I'm joined now in studio by Senator Lisa Chambers of Fina Foyle, Sinn Fein TD, and party spokesperson on public expenditure, Rose Conway Walsh, McClifford Special Correspondent with
4: the Irish Examiner. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: And by John Lee, executive editor of the Daily Mail Group, you're all very welcome to the programme. Mick, to you first, and those comments from the Taunashta, this is organised crime, this is organised arson attacks, there's criminality here um, in relation to the attack in Lake Slip that we were talking about um, with Pascal Donahue a little uh, moment ago. Do you feel you've been a little late to call it as such?
5: Also, I don't know, Kira. I mean, labels or labels. I mean, you know, to me, it's, it's literally become a form of terrorism. And I mean, it's not terrorism as in emanating from one organisation or group, but it's an organic type of thing. The objective is to terrorise. It's to ensure that people are not going, going to be able to stay in the place. The other element to the whole thing is 18 incidents this since January last year. How many beds... Does that mean in t- that are taken out of the system, potential beds even. Like there's a chain reaction with all these things. Everybody has to have a roof over their heads. And,
1: and you say there's been 18 I think since last January and I believe about seven of those have been since November. We're really talking about this intensifying here.
5: Yeah oh, it, it, it is completely. The, 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 there's a scenario it would appear, certainly the Guardi appear to think, that these things are incited by a small group of far-right agitators and that in some, and it's very difficult to know for a fact, but in a lot of instances, some local people who get involved in actually committing the arson. Now, to be fair to the guards, it's extremely difficult to uh, investigate these things, especially anywhere that's rural in terms of CCTV uh, footage. But, I mean, it's definitely getting to a point that confidence in, in, in the... System is going to break down if some people aren't made somewhere responsible pretty soon.
1: Uh, confidence in which system? You mean in, in, God, with, with in the ability to to actually deal with this to tackle uh, absolutely.
5: this? Absolutely, it's a law and order issue, and, and as it's not a political issue, it's a law and order issue. And even though it is very difficult, you know, people are just it, it's getting. And I understand it's very difficult to investigate, but mm. something needs to happen soon because confidence is really, I think, it, 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 it's very precarious at the moment.
1: Yeah, at least Chambers you would accept the threat level has changed here, 18 such incidents, I think four this year so far, more only at the beginning of February. Uh,
4: Yeah, like it it is a challenge and I think as a country um, you know, do we want to have a situation where it becomes the norm to see buildings set ablaze, um, whatever their their purpose might be for. Uh, And the most recent attack in um, Leakslip that building wasn't even intended to be used by the Department of Immigration. But it appears a story went out across Facebook or other platforms um, and it spread even though it was completely false. But what's the point that Mick has made, and I think I made it with the Minister too, that
1: people, you see them on social media talking about specific buildings, talking about buildings being targeted. We've had 18 such incidents. There has been nobody charged at this
4: point. The people are actually quite brazen. People are emboldened at this point. I think, um, I know that the Gardaí are working to try and find the perpetrators of these um, attacks. It is a very serious criminal offence that is punishable by up to 10 years in prison. So it is a very serious um, crime to commit. And I think that message needs to go out. I think 99.9% of the public are appalled when they see this. Despite concerns being raised around migration, I think most people would agree that that is not a space we want to be in. Um, The Gardaí are trying to deal with it. It It is difficult to anticipate the commission—the commission of a crime—I think we we can all accept that. Is it? so where... at this point is—is is that a fair
1: point, Johnny? That it is very difficult to anticipate. I mean, I think in relation to this particular property that we've seen uh, last night, that was actually targeted last week. I think there was a small fire this uh, last week. Uh, with respect, I think um,
6: Lisa has been defensive of her coalition partner uh, Helen McEntee. Yet you have had quite a few clashes with her yourself in the in the in the Shannon this year, last year. Um, Rose Conway Walsh's party put down emotional confidence in her but not to guard a commissioner for political reasons. We've had a ca- catastrophic breakdown in, in the maintenance of law and order. And to say we can't predict any of this, there was an incident in Clare, I recall, I didn't research this before we came on, but as we were speaking I recall it last summer where people were stopping cars on open public roads and asking people where they were going. There was another incident at that same time in the same area where people got on a bus and interrogated um, people who would come from war-torn countries to seek asylum here on a bus, filmed them. And for, this went on for about a week. Now, there, there are laws governing what one can do on an open highway in this country. And, and one of those laws is you have absolutely no right to conduct, your, c- conduct yourself in that fashion.
1: So you think that the, the approach was... was- Two hands off at one point. I mean, I think many would argue that that approach has changed from the guards. But we saw I, that down at Ross I then Gray. stood
6: outside the doll back in, was it September? The, the first catastrophic failure of policing outside our, our, our National Assembly, um, where people were displaying effigies of politicians. Cross-party, by the way, Mary Lou MacDonald was one of them on, on a gallows. And I remember having a conversation, I said in this programme um, before, with a guard um, pointing out to him that there was an effigy there um, that is an incitement to hatred, and the guardie. So, do you th-
1: felt- th- just to be clear. Do you think this is a failure of
7: policing? Of
6: course it is. Of course it is. Well, How could agree? it possibly be?
7: Well, you'd have to say it is, but it's also a fail- failure of, of government policy. But we're, we're dealing with a criminal activity. Yes, here. and the government. The and government. And government, has I, I has I should be. say, the government yeah.
6: um, gives gives resources to yeah. the guardie. You yeah. know, this
7: is not a, a criticism of rank and file guardie yeah. by any sense. Exactly. So it's obvious that the Guardi need more resources to do this to to, uh, to properly uh, uh, prosecute uh, people and to gather the evidence and the intelligence that they need. When we're 18 of these incidents down the line, like it's an absolute miracle that somebody hasn't been very seriously injured are killed and I think everybody would be wondering tonight what about the next time is it going to happen again and is somebody going to lose their life here and that's why all the resources need to be put into it but we need a proper we obviously need a proper immigration policy as well but I think well, all right minded proper
1: immigration policy well
7: I do think in terms of just how immigration has been handled it's clearly not working we don't have the proper communication and consultation and resources with communities now and that has to be done. We have to learn as we go along here. So I cannot understand, for instance, why there isn't better use made in terms of community projects, family resource centres, and all of the people in communities, that there isn't better integration with the department. I just wonder, because I, I part... do hear
1: this, and I've heard this for yeah. a long time, that this yeah. is about communication. And I wonder sometimes, is yeah. it but about no, communication, no, you, you
7: separate Leffert? But I absolutely have to be clear. You separate the criminal activity to people who have genuine concerns, and they should not be mixed up in any sense of the word, but uh, there has to be something different done here, and I think the government, the, the big problem is that there hasn't been a whole of government response, and it's all been left to Roderick O'Gorman. Can I just
1: respond?
5: Uh, to there's 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 an there's I mean, Rose is correct in terms of the whole of government response. There's definitely an issue there, and other parts of the cabinet have run away from it because they just see it as trouble. There's no question that's an issue. Um, in terms of communication, like, there's, there's two elements to it. One, to be fair to O'Gorman's department and, and people in general, they have to move very quickly, very often, to ensure that people are not sleeping in the streets or at least minimise the number of people sleeping in the streets, unfortunately. The other element to it is... What does communication mean if you communicate with a community early on? Does that mean that people are going to mobilise and try and stop somebody coming in? Or does it mean there'll be a welcome for it? And there's very little indication recently, in some places there definitely is and there was previously, Mm. that there would be very obviously a welcome. That is not at all obvious anymore.
4: Can I just respond to a couple of the points made? I mean, I think in relation to resources for the Gardaí it's been well documented. There have been additional resources provided and recruitment has been increased and we are getting more Gardaí into the system. This is an incredibly difficult situation and we are dealing with huge numbers that we've never had to deal with previously, mainly because of the war in Ukraine. Okay, so that, look, I don't want to part, get into a, co- a that conversation part... about Gardaí
1: because I actually think there was a, a headline in
4: one of the front of the papers at the weekend saying there's more Gardaí have left the force last year than
1: joined the force. Yeah. And, and I,
4: I accept that, but I think to acknowledge the context of the extraordinary numbers that we've never had to deal with previously. And in relation to Sinn Féin, and I do think maybe more questions around People are not sure what the Sinn Féin policy is on migration, and their party leader, Mary Lou McDonald, has been asked on several occasions because well, it seems to change Lisa, quite not a lot. Sure what, so, the in terms... But can I also make the point about the, the legal basis that governs immigration policy in the country is we have now the EU Migration Pact at an EU level. We have the UN Convention on Refugees, which is an international uh, convention that we have signed yeah. up to. So, uh-huh. that that is the immigration policy that we adhere to as as a country that has signed up to the UN. Okay, very, very yeah, briefly. Yeah, can I
7: say that it, there has been really good integration uh, projects done around this country where there has been proper communications with communities using mm-hmm. like
1: the family resource into the community development.
7: Like in Mayo for instance, okay. you know Mayo Just, uh, just to the Action. point that she was making all about Sinn Féin those.
1: policy being sort of confused in the no, area of immigration. Sinn Féin is, is,
7: Sinn- is not confused here it's at all, but the government is confused and they've had so long to do this. I accept it's really challenging in the challenge that has been for government, but for every all of the departments and all of mm. the, the government politicians out of three parties to keep shying away from all this and leaving it at Roderick O'Gorman to sort out it was okay. clear that Do, it wasn't. Does Sinn Féin agree way.
1: with that report that we saw a couple of weeks back that said that the vast majority of people think too many um, asylum seekers or refugees have been brought into Ireland?
7: No, we. What we, what our clear stance is that we don't agree with the way that it, things have been done and have been done. By government, and that there is a way of doing it, and there's a successful model there of doing it. We also agree so that there a, it's needs a model, to be not
1: the numbers you're saying is well, yeah, Is that right? No, is that there, there policy. Ne- well,
7: there needs to be a pan-European approach as well. They're but not. Is... They're not just. There it needs to be in, 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 in terms year. of supports and all that. It needs to be the same across the EU. So that approach needs to. be have But communities need to, it really okay, okay, need to be and resources need to be put in communities.
5: That issue about too many asylum seekers. This is a state of five million people. If you're talking about international protection people, you're talking about up until recent years, less than 10,000, even lower at times. It's We're talking tiny... about
1: 13,000, I think, last year. Wasn't uh, yeah, that the 13,000? Uh, uh, yeah, 13, until recent. Yeah.
5: I know, and now it's going between 10 and 20. That is still a tiny number of people. Now, the exacerbating factor which has brought all this to a head is the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And we, we've obligations in that respect as well. But this notion that there's too many people coming in here who are fleeing war, it just doesn't add up on any kind of numerical basis whatsoever. But that's part of the stuff that's being put about in order to heighten emotions and, and to basically to try and turn people against people who are fleeing some of the most desperate circumstances any of us could ever imagine.
1: OK, so the, the point that Michael Martin was making today in Washington, he was saying... Um, which actually seems to contradict, I think, what you said, Lisa, and indeed what Pascal Donoghue just said. Um, he, Mia Martin, said we need tougher sanctions potentially here. We need greater deterrence. Both Lisa and Pascal say, look, at the sanctions are there. There's actually pretty strict um, sanctions there for anybody who's found guilty of arson.
6: But as I said, we've, we've had foreshadow of this for well over a year. It's not as if it's a, if it's a, it's a new phenomenon. So, again, I go back and to repeat myself that... That it is a failure of policing. Of course, the laws are there to enforce, and and if the pe- there's people stopping people on open roads, then you've you've got a problem because they're going to move to the next thing. But you know, we're going to we've a, we've a local and European elections coming up in in uh, in, in a few months. Um, Sinn Fein are all over the place when it comes to immigration. They're a populist party. Their own their own members have conceded that. Senior people have said that Owner a among them. And um, Mary Lou Macdonald did make a, a serious change. In an interview with our paper before Christmas, where she said said policy on Ukrainian refugees need, you know, asylum seekers needs to change, and p- people who 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 okay, can address, work, uh, yeah. this sort of well, if I finish, uh, who can work should be favoured. Sinn Fein, as a populist party, will watch what wh- the, the the best way to go in the local and European elections. And unfortunately, in a country that has, is one of the most underpopulated um, countries in in Western Europe. This is going to be a major issue in the elections. And and politicians need to set set a stall out for right or wrong. Whether Sinn Féin or other parties are going to do that, we'll see. What
1: what is Uh, your uh, stall? uh, uh, This is is, uh, is an uh, allegation uh, that's coming from both sides here. Mary Lou Macdonald changed her policy
6: in an interview with our paper before Christmas. And the Ukrainian refugees who can work should be favoured. The implication then being... That, all that those who can, We
7: have asked for months and months now for a national strategy. And the reason why we need a national strategy... But I suppose what, is what the they're asking is, what is your strategy? Of, well, that's what I'm saying. A national strategy where you have services that are front-loaded into communities, where there's proper communication, where you know that the services <laughs> and supports are there so that integration is done properly. That is, that is our... And when you talk about um, Sinn Féin and have a look at the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael councillors around this country and what they're saying. And point, having to be reprimanded, it's time an and time again points. reprimanded. So if Fianna Fáil or Fine
4: Gael have a joined-up strategy on this, I certainly have yet to okay, see Okay, very it. briefly, Personally, Lisa it is, Trin, it is fact that the Sinn Féin policy on, on immigration has changed a number of times in the recent months. That's just, that's well reported. Okay, but it's also a in fact terms, that some local yeah. councillors have not spoken
1: in line with what is stated to policy here too. Well, it,
4: all I will say is that when I hear the Rose opposite. speak... It. Look at Butch okay, in vein. Let's just add a response. That's the strategy. I mean, speaking Butch about okay. resources and consultation, that's, that's mm. one thing. And everyone accepts that resources are needed in communities. But Why the, point that, Mick, the point that Mick was making about people coming in today mm. need to be given a roof over their heads tonight. And that's the level of pressure that's on the department. So it would be helpful for opposition members to just acknowledge the context of what we're dealing with. So that is quite challenging. Of course we want integration, mm. but we're dealing with huge numbers coming in. In terms of the policy and how it works, we've just signed up to the EU Migration Pact last December, just two months ago. So that does govern our obligations at an EU level. And I said we have international obligations too, and that's never acknowledged. Uh, I
1: just want to move on because we did bring uh, the Minister in here to talk about this public sector uh, pay deal. Um, You welcome the pay deal, Rose. Are you happy, though, that we are getting value for money in return?
7: No, I think there's a real opportunity when you have a pay deal to, to bring about uh, reform. And I think that opportunity was missed here to a great extent. And the reason why it was missed is because I think government and the minister dragged their feet in terms of we're now in the second month of the year. This could have been done much earlier in the year. And then we could have more detail
1: in terms of the reforms that were needed. Well, and I, th- I think the-, the suggestion that was being made is that the government were waiting to see where inflation went before they agreed to a pay deal that perhaps reflected yeah, inflation that yeah. wasn't there any longer. Longer.
7: Well, a lot of a lot of the discussion could have taken place much earlier in the year. We kept. So, what reforms did the the have looked for? Or, well, one of the ones I suppose is, is outsourcing. We believe that in the public service and the civil service, we have outsourced so, mon- so much of the decision-making that that has been. So instead of uh, building up expertise within the civil and pub- public service, I think we're impacted by that. I'm glad to see the number of apprenticeships is increasing, but it's still only about 10%, you know, it's not, and that has been kind of government have been kicked, have been bought um, um, kicking and screaming to that. Also in terms, obviously, of productivity, obviously in terms of accountability, accountability across particularly for very well-paid okay. senior uh, civil
4: servants rather. Yeah.
1: So there's a number of things there that seem to be I a think can be done. be distinct lack of detail there, speaking to Pascal here, but what was the quid pro quo here?
4: Look, I mean, you're always going to look for efficiencies, aren't you? And, and to try and sure, ensure... Great... <laughs> yeah, We're looking be, for efficiencies. You know, sure, what does that mean? It in is, Lisa I mean, chambers? you know, I think the point the minister was making is that he was very clear that he wanted to get value for money from the public purse because it is the public money being spent But I I did think the process was was quite efficient. It wasn't very acrimonious. It was very civilised. I think that both sides got around the table and reached an agreement. And it's an agreement that's that's good for workers. Is that because it's an election year, John?
6: Well, we've we've, we've historically failed to get productivity from the civil service. I I think he he pretty much said it um, bluntly there. And it's, it's funny seeing Sinn Féin disagreeing with the line he took, which is, we've got to make the public service more attractive to people. So let's give them a few quid, which they did. And they'll be looking for more because interest rates are not going down any time
7: soon.
1: All right, OK. So have mutually ha- exclusive
7: productivity and attractiveness.
1: OK, we're going to have to leave that conversation there for now. My thanks to Lisa Chambers, Rose Conway-Walsh, McClifford and to John Lee. After the break, Benjamin Netanyahu rejected the ceasefire deal that was put with Hamas and vows to press ahead for a total victory. We'll bring you the very latest. You're very welcome back. Well, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected the latest ceasefire offer from Hamas. It's understood the Hamas proposal included a three-stage ceasefire with phases lasting up to six weeks, seeing hostages held by Hamas exchanged for Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails with a more permanent deal to end the war in place by the end of that third stage. However, Mr Netanyahu rejected the deal, saying total victory in Gaza was within reach. We are on the way to complete
4: victory. The victory is achievable. It's not a matter of years or decades. It's a matter of months.
1: Well, I'm joined now down the line by Oliver McChiernan, mediator and director of Forward Thinking, an organisation that works to promote peace in the Middle East. Oliver, you're very welcome to the programme. So we understand there was this deal on the table. There was going to be this exchange of hostages for prisoners, but Hamas also wanted a full withdrawal of troops eventually from the Gaza Strip and sort of a timetable for the end of the war. What aspect of those conditions was so unconscionable to Benjamin Netanyahu?
8: Well, I think... Netanyahu hasn't changed his stance since the beginning of this war. He started off with a double objective, and that was first and foremost to see the complete defeat of Hamas and complete dismantling of its organization in Gaza. And his second goal was to see the release of the hostages. Now, he was convinced that by putting military pressure on Hamas, he could release the hostages. Well, that's proven up till now a very, very high risk um, strategy. We've seen uh, the Israelis themselves responsible for killing three of their young hostages who had managed to escape. And we don't know how many exactly may have been killed with the bombing. But Hamas, on the other hand, have being persisting, that they wanted a complete truce, and they wanted a, what they called, all-for-all all principle, all of the hostages being released for all of the detainees and prisoners held in Israeli jails. So, you know, there were there were two incompatible um, aims, and I'm afraid the negotiations that were done in Paris were not able to bridge that. So to Dun- Knight's announcement, I think, was very predictable.
1: Um, He has also said there um, that victory is within reach, that it's within reach in the short term in a number of months. But we know there's a new round of negotiations starting again tomorrow. So how realistic is a ceasefire in the short term with those two contradictory positions?
8: Uh, Yes, it's it's first of all, it's it's such an unusual way to conduct negotiations in front of the 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 world media. um, Also, the mechanism that instead of having the parties in near proximity and one negotiator going or two going between the parties, you've got this painful mechanism where we've got four countries involved, and then. Mm messages being passed from the political wing of Hamas to the military wing through the Egyptians. It's, its you know, an impossible way to reach a deal. I, I think his um, pronouncement for total victory is optimistic, um, more likely unrealistic, but the price being paid while this is being played out is just unimaginable. We are faced with 2.3 million people in Gaza in life-changing conditions. And worryingly,
1: the IDF have now said that their next focus is on RAFA, the area that they told so many of these people to go to for safety. You hear her, the UN saying today, this is a humanitarian nightmare and this will make it so much worse.
8: It'll make it, it... There is a nightmare as it is. It'll turn into a total catastrophe. Um, I don't know what uh, the Americans are doing in not saying to them, look, this cannot go on. Um, we see in front of our eyes the whole sort of um, framework in which we conducted relationships uh, at a national level and um, being just torn up in front of our eyes. And okay. no one is saying enough, stop it. Okay, um, if this assault goes on, and Rafa, God knows what will be the consequences. And I think the risk of a regional confrontation is very, very real indeed.
1: Oliver McTiernan, thank you for speaking to us very, very briefly. um, McClifford, we see the UN Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, touring the region again for the fifth time. We see him meeting the Palestinian Authority. To date, you get a sense that there is a shift here in the United States, that they are willing to look beyond Benjamin Netanyahu at
5: this point. Yeah, well, the cat's out of the bag with Netanyahu. I mean, if he doesn't have total victory, as he says, then his political career is over. That's a very dangerous scenario when you consider the catastrophe that's going on in Gaza, that this man's political career is dependent, effectively, on the war continuing and the slaughter continuing. And it seems that the Americans are finally copping on, that they're going to have to move against him one way or the other.
1: All right, Mick Clifford, thank you, as always, uh, for your time. That's it from us this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok, TonightVMTV. But from all of the late team here, good night. Take care.